Matthew chapter 21 is where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 32. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. If you found your way there, I encourage you to take God's Word. Let's stand together and read this passage. Matthew chapter 28, excuse me, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. And this coming off the heel of Jesus answering the question, by what authority are you doing these things? And you remember that he responded to the authorities by asking them about John the Baptist and what authority he had. Verse 28, But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. And you can be seated. So we find here Jesus, again, for the second time in, 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 in the second um, amount of stories here, uh, putting the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, on notice and very boldly and powerfully confronting them face to face. They had come to him with this question, hoping to trick him by asking him about the authority by which he preached. And he turned around the question on them and ask them about John the Baptist, which he knew for them would be an unanswerable question because as, as we looked a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Ben did, if they said that he was from, uh, if the baptism of John was from men, they feared the people, but if they said it was from heaven, they knew they would have to confess that they had been disobedient in not responding to the preaching of John. So now Jesus opens up this parable of two sons, and it's an interesting story. It's very simple. A man owns a vineyard. And he comes to his two sons in the morning because work needs to be done in the vineyard. And he says to the first son to go do the work. And the son says, I will not go. And he comes to the second and the second son says, I will go. Now, there's an interesting juxtaposition there. The first son says he will not. But then the story goes on to tell us that later he changed his mind and he went and did the work that he had been requested to do. Whereas the second son, although he said he would go, he did not actually go to the vineyard. Now, Matthew is the only one to record this parable, and actually the following three parables here in the Scriptures. And this parable is demonstrated to contrast the religious leaders' response to Jesus with their response to John the Baptist. Uh, how they had responded to John the Baptist, how they were responding to the teaching and the preaching ministry of Jesus. So what we're going to see in this passage this morning is understanding the difference between true obedience and false obedience. In fact, one commentator said the meaning of this parable is crystal clear. The Jewish leaders are people who said that they would obey God and then did not. So it's interesting. We have to begin to put our minds in the face of, of who Jesus is speaking to here. You have surrounding him the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders of the people. All of these religious leaders gathered here. And in their minds, and in fact, in the minds of all the people who are there, these are 
the superiority of the religious system. These are the experts on the Jewish law. These are the experts on the temple procedures. These are the ones who, if you said, I have a religious or a spiritual question, these are the men that you would go to because these were the experts about all things related to God and to the Scriptures and to the Jewish faith. But what Jesus is going to expose here is the hypocrisy that had developed inside of that system. An hypocrisy that was so great that even those who professed to be the most obedient to God were the farthest from Him. You have two sons in this passage, and and in fact, neither of these sons performed satisfactorily. Because the first son said he wouldn't go, but then he did go. The second son said he would, and then he didn't. But the ideal son would be the one who obeyed, who said that he would, and then obeyed. We find this interesting contrast here, but I want you to first notice in this passage the faithful father. Look at verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. This man had two sons, and obviously you have a man of wealth because he has a vineyard that he's working and taking care of. And so both of these sons should have been committed to the family. This, especially in Jewish culture, but it it should even still be so today, uh, that as a son grows up inside the household, he realizes the responsibility that he has to the family, to help the family, to take care of the family. Uh, Many of you in this room probably had parents or grandparents that grew up on a farm here somewhere in North Carolina or wherever you're from. And so as you're Parents or your grandparents grew up, when they received or got to a certain age, they were given responsibilities. They're around the farm. Maybe they were milking the cows or getting the eggs in from the chickens or helping out in the garden. It was something that was really commonplace for almost every person growing up, even here in America until probably the last few decades, that even as a young person, you were expected to work on the family farm, work in the family business to help provide and to help take care of things, and even more so in the Jewish culture. So this father, this faithful father who had worked hard, who had taken care of his family, had provided for them, he comes to his sons and he asks them to go and to work in the vineyard. There's a command that he's given because he says to go. He doesn't say, son, would you go work in the vineyard today? No, he says, go. This is the command. The father has the authority to tell his sons what to do. Because he is their father. So he gives them and issues this command, you need to go. But then he also tells them what to do. He says, go and work. There's a task to be done. And so the father knows that if the grapes aren't harvested in time, that they'll rot on the vine. And if they rot on the vine, they won't be able to be made into product to sell, to support for the family. So there is a limited time span that is available. And the father says, go do the work. And notice what he says. He says, go work today. Because there is a limited time, because there's a shortness of the season of harvest. Now, we need to understand from the get-go, before we even go any further, when Jesus is talking about this man who has two sons, the man is God the Father. This is talking about God the Father, and the command that he's giving here is the command to go do the gospel work. It's the command to be saved. It's the command to then be obedient to God. So understanding in that capacity, we understand that the call to salvation is not a request. God is not sitting in heaven saying, Oh, I hope somebody comes to faith today. I sure hope that somebody will turn from their sins. Every time we see the gospel in the scripture, Jesus says, Repent. It's not a request, it's a command. 
God commands all men everywhere to repent. That is the command from God. The Father's command, He said, you go and do what I have called you to do. This is a call to obedience. It's a call to trust in Him. It's a call to be faithful to the work of the Father. So first of all, it's a call to come and to trust in Him. It's a call to believe in Him. It's a call to, to do what He has asked us to do. But He says that there's work to be done. And we know from Sunday after Sunday in studying God's Word that there is a great amount of work that needs to be done in the kingdom of God. We're not working in a physical vineyard anymore, and Jesus is paralleling this to the work that needs to be done for the kingdom. You look out, even in Jesus' day, there was a lot of work that needed to be done for the kingdom of God. And you can imagine how much more so now. The world has grown, the population has grown, and there's much more work that needs to be done for the kingdom of God. But there's also the timeline, because the time is short. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know how long our life is. But what we do know is that God has called us to go to work in the vineyard. So here Jesus is paralleling two sons. With sons who had a faithful father, a son, two sons who had a father who commanded them to go and to work and to do the task of the family business. And again, this is paralleling God's call to us to go to do the task and the work of the father's business in this life. So you have a faithful father, but I want you to notice more clearly here the two sons, because the first one we have now, this, this kind of seems uh, counterintuitive, but I, but I hope that you understand. I, I entitled the first son, the rebellious repenter. The rebellious repenter. Look at verse 29. Because he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. This is a shocking statement. Can you imagine, those of you in the room who you're a parent, can you imagine having an older son or even just even a younger son? It's still, it's no less offensive and no less arrogant or disrespectful for a child to obediently, to immediately disobey and to so uh, arrogantly despise what your parent, the parent has asked them to do than what you see this son doing here. The father said, go and do the work. This was his responsibility. And the son blatantly looks at his father with such arrogance and says, I will not. He might as well have spit in the face of his father. So he was rebellious. He, he did not want to go and to do what the father had asked him to do. Now, the reasons aren't given here, but we can assume some things, right? It was probably hard work. It was probably hot work. It was probably long and arduous work. Maybe this son had other things that he wanted to do that day. Perhaps his friends were going to do something. For some reason or the other, he did not want to be obedient to the Father. And so he very arrogantly said, I will not go. But the Scripture tells us that later after reflection, he changed his mind. As he began to think about the faithfulness and the goodness of his Father. As he began to think about how his father had cared for him throughout his life, as he began to think about everything that his father had done for him and provided for him and showed for him and cared for him, this son, even though he was filled with rebellion and disrespect and arrogance, he changed his mind. 
And the word used there in the original language is the idea of repentance. So this man repented, this son, he, he changed his mind. He had a true change of heart on the inside. It wasn't just something that he thought about, but it was a true change of, of heart that led to a change of action because that's what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind about our situation that leads to a change of action. It's, it's, it's demonstrable. We see it happen in somebody's life. Because this repentance is demonstrated by observational obedience. Because the son not only changed his mind, but then he went and did what the father had asked for him to do. He didn't go and say to the father, Father, I'm sorry about what I've done, and and I'll go take care of that work later. No, the scripture tells us that he changed his mind, and in demonstration of that repentance, he went straight to the fields and began to do the work that the father had called him to do. One commentator said this, No one who truly repents fails to show clear evidence of his inner heart change by his outward obedience. What is the evidence of true repentance? The evidence of true repentance is the outward demonstration of obedience to the command that the Father has given. And it's the same thing for us in our life. How do we know if we've truly repented? It's because there's an outward demonstration of our, in our lives of obedience to the commands that the Father has given us. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what? And not do the things which I've commanded you to do. There's obedience that must come. There's obedience that must be demonstrated. And so this first son, even though he was rebellious, he was a rebellious repenter because he turned from his rebellion. He changed his mind. He went back and began to do the things that the father had asked him to do. Now, the second son I've entitled the loyal liar. Look at verse 30. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. So this man comes to his second son. Now remember, this is just on the heels of his first son being rebellious and arrogant and turning away. He goes to the second son and he asks him, Son, go work in the vineyard today. Go do what I've asked you to do. And so politely, such an honoring response, this second son says, Yes, Father, I will go. I'm not like your first son over there. I'm not like him. I I will be obedient to you. I will go and do the work that you've asked me to do. But then he didn't go. It was an untrue demonstration of obedience. He lied to his father. He wanted to make it look on the outside like everything was okay. He wanted to be viewed as the father, as being the one who was good, who was obedient, who was the faithful son. But even from the very beginning, he had no true intention of doing what the father intended him to do. He only had the intention of doing what his heart wanted to do, but he wanted to cover it up. Now, Jesus shares this story. And he doesn't share this story just for the uniqueness of it. He shares this story because he wants to ask the question in verse 31. He asks the condemning question. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the Father? Now what's interesting about this question is that this is what they have entitled, is what it's entitled, and if you look in, in scriptures, is a judicial parable. Because the answerer, the person who's being asked the question, 
will condemn themselves by the implied answer. You think about Nathan and David. When David had sinned and the prophet Nathan went into him and Nathan shared this story about a poor man who had a lamb and the rich man who came and took the poor man's lamb. And you remember Nathan was in, I mean, David was incensed at, at this thing of how somebody who had all this money and all this wealth would go and take this lamb from this poor person. And you remember when David confessed that, his anger to them, Nathan looked at him and he said, David, you are the man. And it's the same thing in this passage. Because it's obvious to even the most careless listener who did the will of the Father in this story. It was the one who actually did something. The first son, even though he responded with arrogance and rebellion, eventually he went and did what the father had asked him to do. Because it's not so much about confessing and saying that you're going to do it. It's about whether you actually put your feet to it and actually accomplish it. And so when the Pharisees and the religious leaders, when they confessed and they said the first, what they did was condemn themselves. Because Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. Why? Well, we need to understand who does the first son and the second son represent. The first son represents the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Now we need to understand when Jesus talks about prostitutes and tax collectors, we need to understand how severe this would have been to the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders, remember, they had themselves up on a pretty high pedestal. They viewed themselves as, as pretty proud, pretty respectable, the, the highest in the elite of the elite. Now, if you were to ask the scribes or the Pharisees or any of those people, who are the, the worst people in society? Who, who are the dregs in, in culture? They would have immediately pointed to the tax collectors and to the prostitutes. They were on the lowest rung of the societal ladder. So there's a reason that Jesus points to them. There's a reason that Jesus uses them as this parallel, because Jesus tells the religious leaders that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into heaven before you. And he's not saying that they're just going to get in there, that the, the, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get there, and then the religious leaders will follow after them, because it's, it, you, you could almost question that by the way that it's worded. No, what he's saying is like they're going to get there, and you're not. They're going to go into the kingdom of God, and you're going to be rejected from the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 15 says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So from the very beginning... We see the hatred that the Pharisees and the scribes had towards the tax collectors, towards the prostitutes, towards the sinners. Now, isn't it interesting that the people who in their society, in their culture, were, who were perhaps the most needy of hearing the truth of the gospel, both the, in, in need of hearing the truth of who God is, the, the truth of what the, the Scripture says about who God is, that the Pharisees and the scribes didn't even want to have anything to do with those people. Most likely because they viewed them as unreachable. They viewed them as people that they didn't care about. It was like, why would we share the good news of who God is with people such as that? But the first son 
is a picture of these prostitutes and tax collectors. Because it's a picture of somebody who in the beginning of their life rebels against God. They follow the course of their father Adam. They follow into their sin. They follow and they rebel against God and they reject it. They've rejected Him. They've rejected the truth of who He is. And they live a life of sin and self. But then something happens. They hear the truth of the gospel. And as soon as they hear the truth of the gospel, they find out who their father is. They find out that their father is one who loves them and cares for them and wants to provide for them and do everything he can for them. And so they turn and they come back. They repent and they come to the God who made them and created them. Jesus is pointing to the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were saved under the ministry of John the Baptist. All the people in the villages, all the people in the cities were going out to hear this strange prophet in the wilderness, this strange Old Testament-style prophet preaching a message of repentance in the wilderness. And as they heard the truth of what John was preaching, tax collectors were getting saved. Prostitutes were getting saved. Sinners, all kinds of people who were wicked and living in rebellion against God were getting saved. And this is the demonstration of the first son. Those who were the most despised by the religious leaders were the ones who were becoming the most keenly aware about their sins and were desperate to repent and to believe in the message of Jesus Christ. But now the second son is the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders first gave a, a passing approval of John, but they never followed through. They never believed. They professed obedience to God by knowing everything that the temple required, by knowing all the things of the Scriptures of the Old Testament. But when it came down to true obedience, they had rejected the commands of God. Because what had God commanded them to do? God had commanded them to believe in His Son to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow the teachings and the ministry of John the Baptist. John chapter 5 says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Luke chapter 7, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. When John the Baptist first arrived on the scene, the scribes and the Pharisees were willing to tolerate it for a little while because it didn't have any effect on them. But as soon as they saw the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes getting saved, and they saw the people responding to John's message by saying, John truly is a prophet from God, then they began to hate John, and they rejected him. They never really listened to the message he preached. All they saw him as was a threat to the system that they had created to keep the people in bondage. They weren't going to believe anything John said because it threatened their ability to control the situation. So they had professed faith, they had professed obedience to God, but when it came to the heart of the matter, when the Father said, go and do the work, 
The religious leaders did not go. They did not do what God had commanded them to do. They did not follow through in obedience. I want you to notice in well in verse 32, the judgmental juxtaposition. It says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. He says, John came in the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness is the way of truth. It's the way of the gospel. It's the, the preaching of the truth and the message of who Jesus was as the Messiah, that he had been sent by God to come to this earth. It was the true message of everything that's encapsulated in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus condemns him by saying, he says, John came to you in a way that was, was, was verifiable by his ministry, that he was from God. The things that John's ministry proved, the things that were happening in his life, could not have happened unless God was on his side, could not have happened unless God had sent him. He said, but even with all the verifiable demonstration, you did not believe him. He says, you think that you're the greatest when it comes to matters of spirituality. You think that you're the greatest when it comes to the knowledge of God's will. He said, but God came to you so perfectly and powerfully through the ministry of John, and you rejected him. But these people over here, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, these people who you say have no understanding of God, they were able to clearly see the truth of who God was, and they repented. And then he condemns them even further because he says, and you were a witness to all this. You were a witness to John. You were a witness to the repentance of the wickedest sinners that you know. And even with all of that, you were not moved with compassion to believe what John had done. Even though they had witnessed this powerful ministry of John, they refused to believe. Matthew Poole in his commentary said it's hard to convince a moral, righteous, civil man that he lacks anything to salvation. And hence it is that profane persons may in times repent, believe, and are saved when others perish in their impotent and unbelief because they think they have no need of repentance or further righteousness than they are possessed of. The scribes and the Pharisees were so convinced of their self-righteousness so convinced of their religiosity, of their knowledge of the God, of their knowledge of the of the Old Testament, so convinced of their place in society that they could not be convinced of their need for repentance. Spurgeon continues on that same line of thought, and he says, "Open sinners." who had seemed to refuse the voice of God, did actually believe him. And so, by hating John's ministry of righteousness, went into the kingdom of God before the more likely classes. It's interesting. You have the religious elite who Jesus says will not get into the kingdom of God. They could not see past their false religion. They could not see past their self-righteousness in order to believe the truth of who God was. And yet, on the other hand, you have those who are viewed as the worst in the world, who the clarity and the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel 
was so evident to them. And they responded and trusted and believed in Christ and were saved. This comparison of two sons reminded me of another story that Jesus told about two sons. Luke chapter 15 contains the story that's commonly referred to as the prodigal son. Pastor Wes and I were discussing before service this morning how I really don't like that title for that story. Because I would be willing to bet this morning that most of us in this room grew up hearing the story of the prodigal son in this way. There was a son who was uh, who had grown up in his father's household. He rebelled and went away, and then he came back. And you hear this story illustrated as someone who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, then at some point in their life began to veer away from God. They went out and sowed their wild oats. They lived in rebellion, and then they come back to God. And they say, well, the prodigal son's story is a picture of a, of a Christian who fell into sin, became a carnal Christian, became a backslidden Christian, and then came back to God. That is not the story of the prodigal son. That's not what the Scripture is talking about. The story that Jesus relates there in the story of the prodigal son is a son who was lost. He was a son who lived in sin. Why? How do we do that? Because as he grows up, he, he desires what he wants for himself. He wants his inheritance. He wants to live life for himself. This is a picture of a person who veers out into the world fully committed to living a life of sin and rebellion against God. I want what is mine. Father, give me what I deserve. It would be like somebody saying today, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. I'm going to make me happy. What makes me happy is what I'm going to do. You can't tell me what to do because if it makes me happy, it's my own way. This is the story of the prodigal son. So this son goes out. We all know the story, right? He goes out. His father gives him his inheritance. He, we, we see there the kind of the, the common graces of God because the father gives him that and he sends him on his way because the father knows what's going to happen to him. The father understands what's going to happen to this son as he goes out. And so the son goes out and he lives in rebellious living and he, he parties and does all of these things until all of the money runs out and then he finds himself in the lowest place that a person can find themselves. He finds himself in a pigsty. Now, for any of us in this room, I don't know about you, but finding myself in laying in a pigsty and eating the slop would be the lowest place that I could think about being. But for a Jewish person, it would be even lower because pigs were the most despised creatures in the Jewish faith. So for this man to be eating alongside of pigs, Jesus is painting a beautiful picture here. Of this man was at the depths of his life. He could go no further down than where he was in this moment. And it says that in that moment, there's something changed in that young man. That he realized who his father was. And he realized the graciousness of his father and the things and the protection and the provision that his father offered to him. And so he gets up and he, he doesn't go back, uh, walking back to demand what he's owed. He goes back in humility. Because he says along the way, I will go back just to the desire to be a servant in my father's house. If he'll even take me back, I'll just be a hired servant in the father's house. Because he's broken over what he did. He's repentant over what he did. And he's going back to throw himself at the mercy of the father. And the scripture tells us that while the son was a long way off, the father was looking for him. 
And the father saw him before he even saw the father. And the scripture tells us that as soon as the father sees the son, he begins to run to his son. And what we see here is a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Is that the son didn't even know the father was looking for him. But he was. And he ran to him. And he scooped him up. And there's so many, we're not preaching this passage this morning. There's so many things Wesley and I were sharing this morning. There's so many things you could go into. But the beautiful picture of the story here is this young man who was lost in sin, who had never been converted. He was out in a life of sin, repented, and comes back to the Father. And the Father welcomes him back in, welcomes him into the kingdom, puts his robe around him, doesn't wipe him off and clean him off, but puts his robe around him as a symbolic uh, of Christ's righteousness over us. He's been wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he begins to throw this party. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You read this passage, I often thought growing up that the party was for the son. The party wasn't for the son. The party is for the father because he's rejoicing in what has happened. He's rejoicing that his son has returned home, but he's more rejoicing in that his goodness and his faithfulness to do this for his son, to welcome him back into the kingdom. But the reason I share that story this morning is because there is a second son in that story as well. And the second son had been at home the whole time. And when the first son comes back, he's been out working in the vineyard. He's been out working and he comes back in and he says, wait a minute, what's going on? And the servant's son said, oh, your, your, your brother has come back home and your father has killed the fatted calf and he's put on the robe and put the rings on his finger. And the second son gets angry. He's like, why would you do that? Why would you allow this son who had rebelled against you to come back? And he's angry and, 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 and indignant against his father. And his father says, son, all that I have, he says, son, you had been with me. And all that mine is yours, but we have to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, we don't know the answer to what happened in the moments after this story. We would want to think that once the, the second son heard about what had happened, that he would say, your father, you know what, you're right. Let's, let's go in and let's celebrate the return of my brother. But John MacArthur, when he was preaching this message, he said, but the actual answer to the end of this story is, is that once the father says this, the other son drags the father out behind the house and beats him to death with a stick. Because this is what's happening. What we see here is the mercy of God towards lost sinners who repent and come back. And in this second son, we see the arrogance of the religious leaders. They don't want to see God's mercy upon people's lives. They just want what they can get for themselves. This second son in this story here in Matthew 21, the religious leaders are those who had said that they would do the will of the Father, but did not follow through in obedience. And in the story of the prodigal son, that second son, again, is the religious leaders who are angry that God would show mercy towards anyone else. Angry that they would not get what they thought that they deserved. Angry that God's grace is evidence. There's a clear parallel, I think, in this passage to what we see happening in a lot of places today. Unfortunately, there are many churches that are filled with people who can talk the talk, 
but don't walk the walk. They have the right clothes. They show up to church on Sunday morning, and they've got the right clothes on. They look like obedient followers of Jesus Christ, if there is such a way to look like an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. In American culture, we have this kind of idea of what you're supposed to look like. They have the right clothes. They have the right appearance, right? They're well-kept, don't have anything too shaggy about them. They have the right lingo. They know the words to say. Maybe they even have the right membership. They belong to the, to the biggest church in the county. They belong to the first Baptist here or the second Baptist there. So they're impressive when people talk to them and they say, well, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to, to this church over here. And I say, oh, that's such a wonderful church. You must be such a godly person. But on the inside, nothing has been transformed. On the inside, there's no obedience. And then the demonstration of their life shows no repentance, shows no obedience to God, because this is the point that Jesus was saying. He says there must be an outward demonstration of obedience. Keith Green was one of the pioneers of Christian music in the late 1970s and early 1980s, before a tragic death in a plane crash took his life. You've never read anything or listened to his music. Keith was a man who was passionate about Jesus Christ, passionate about living our lives as Christians in such a way that demonstrated true repentance and obedience. And a lot of his music, even at that time, was a stern rebuke of, of easy believism and casual Christianity because that had started really to creep into the circles of the church, and we still see it today. And one song that was perhaps one of his most famous was a song called to obey is better than sacrifice and it's based on 1 Samuel 15:22 In 1 Samuel 15:22 Samuel says has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams I've always been intrigued by that verse especially because this verse is slap in the middle of the Old Testament and we know the Old Testament is filled with God's laws and God's demands for sacrifices. Burnt offerings, bulls, rams, sheep, doves, sacrifice after sacrifice that the people had to do, that God had commanded them to do. But Samuel says here that instead of all these things, God would desire more for you to obey Him than He would for you to offer 50 lambs on the altar. God would desire more for you to obey His commands than He would be to kill the fatted calf. It's an incredible thing because there's so many people who don't live their lives in obedience to God, but they have all these outer trappings. They think, well, if I join the right church or if I give enough money, or if I help the poor, if I do all of these outward things, then God will be okay with me and God will be oppressed with me, impressed with me. And the scripture says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To do what God has called us to do is the most important thing. I wanted to read the lyrics of this song because I think it ties in very well. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. Will you speak of grace and my love so sweet? 
how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping of how it will be if you keep on ignoring my words. Will you pray to prosper and succeed? But your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming back quickly to give back to you according to what you have done. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The question I would ask to you this morning is, are you a rebellious repenter? Or are you a loyal liar? As you sit here today, look at your life. Is there evidence of God's working in your life? Do you see evidence of your obedience following after your repentance? If not, that should concern you. But the good news is as you sit here this morning, there's no better time than right now to make that change. If you're here this morning and you realize that your life has been one of just outward confessions, outward examples, but, but no true repentance, no true obedience to God, you realize this morning that you are the second son, you're the one who has professed all of these wonderful things, but you know that you're not being obedient to do the work of the Father, then in just a moment when we pray, ask God for you to help you change. Ask God to come into your life and to change who you are on the inside, that you can be obedient to Him. And perhaps you're the first son in there this morning. You know you lived a life of rebellion against God. You know you lived a life, but now you're seeking to be obedient to Him. That's wonderful. Pray that God will help you to continue to do that, to continue to live a life of obedience to Him. But there is a third consideration this morning. Perhaps for those of you in here that are young this morning, you don't have to be the first son who goes off and lives a life of sin and then comes back and repents. And you don't have to be the second son who professes but then does the exact the opposite. You, you can be the third one who understands the love of the Father and who even before any of that happens responds by saying, Father, I will go and do the work and then go and do it. So young people in here this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, and you want to know what that means, and you want to talk about that, Pastor Wes and I are going to be here at the church. We'll be glad to talk with you. Because brothers and sisters, the timeline of which the Scripture talks about, to go and do the work today, Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. If you're here this morning, and the Holy Spirit is working upon your heart, and you know it, you can feel His pressing upon you. Don't ignore that. Don't turn it away. But listen to what the Scripture is saying to you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for this passage, Lord, that I know that even from my own heart this week has been, Lord, such a challenge and such an encouragement. Lord, to see 
Lord, the parallels between these two sons. Lord, to see the goodness and the faithfulness of who you are as the Father and what you have done for us. And Lord, our need and our desire and our calling to be obedient to you. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to your table this morning, that we will evaluate our hearts, that we will listen to what the Spirit says, and that we'll follow through in obedience to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Just a moment.